Hello, thank you for coming. Today I would like to talk to you about the most celebrated woman in 5th century Athens, Aspasia. Now, Aspasia is somebody about whom we know virtually nothing. So I'm not going to lie to you, it was a bit of a risk deciding to make a programme about her. <laughs> she doesn't write anything. Um, this is the trouble with wanting to do an even vaguely not entirely male series, is that all writers, apart from Sappho, <laughs> that we have, uh, and you know, the odd line here and there, they're all male, because that's what gets, you know, men get more educated and blah blah, you're not interested, I'm not either. Uh, well I am, but not here. Well, what's interesting about her is that she doesn't write, and therefore I think it's very easy to go, oh, well let's not even try and, and work out who she is. Do you know who else doesn't write who's her contemporary? Socrates. So, frankly, <laughs> if we can be bothered to about him, we can be bothered to know about her. So, mm. um, uh, with you're correct. <laughs> she has been the most work to do. <laughs> you go, I don't. No one knows. Ah, but of course, that's the thing with ancient history uh, is that people often don't know. We're often trying to build somebody out of lots of other things. Uh, Socrates doesn't write anything. He has the greatest effect on Western thought of anybody other than Jesus Christ, probably. And neither of them wrote a word. So, you know, we can't always go on people for their writings. So, Aspasia was born in uh, Miletus in Ionia, what would now be Turkey. And she moves to Athens in probably around 450 BC, and she begins an affair with Pericles, the great statesman of 5th century Athens. He is married to an Athenian woman. They have two children. At some point in his life, uh, he meets Aspasia. I don't know if they overlap. He divorces his wife, and he can't marry Aspasia because some years earlier, he had brought in a citizenship law, which says that Athenian citizens can only marry other Athenian citizens. So they have to live in sin, basically. They have a child uh, who is therefore also not a citizen because he is the offspring of uh, a non-citizen marriage. And so when she arrives in Athens, Aspasia is a metic, a resident alien is how it's translated, uh, which always makes me go, ooh, X-Files, sting, X-Files, sting, X-Files, sting, can't help it. Resident alien in New York. I'm doing it the whole time. I can't help it. Um, so she's a resident alien, a metic. Um, she is also uh, what, well, the Greek word is hetaira, and uh, it's always translated by nice, uh, stuffy academics as courtesan. Um, so uh, to give you an idea of the respective statuses of women in 5th century Athens, we have to go to 4th century Athens to a legal speech by Demosthenes, uh, the great orator. And his spokesperson is a man called Apollodorus, I think, who reads out the speech in court. It's his case. Demosthenes is a writer for hire. He says, courtesans, hetairai, we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubine, prostitute, for the daily care of our person. <laughs> and wives to bear us legitimate children and be the trustworthy guardians of our households. So I'm not saying it's feminism's finest hour. Um, to find out more about the status of women in ancient Greece, I spoke to Professor Sarah Pomeroy, who spent decades writing books about women who were previously hidden from history. I asked her what roles were available to women in Aspasia's time. I called my first book Goddesses, Whores, Wives and Slaves to indicate the various categories. But within the category of whore, there would be many statuses. So the highest status would be a hetaira. A hetaira was a more entertaining companion to a man than his wife could ever be because she was out in the world. The most desirable ones were the ones like Aspasia who were connected with one man. One man could afford to set them up, and that's the way that I'm sure they preferred. But otherwise, we have the notorious Neaira, who was shared by two men. And then we have lower-class Hetairas who are rented out to um, for men's parties, like bachelor parties. 
And we have this idea, don't we, that um, hetairai tend to be more educated than both wives or lower-class prostitutes. They would pick things up because they were out in the world and they were also dealing with more than a husband who was trying to conceal the real world from them. I guess what's kind of interesting is being a hetaira is clearly the most fun, right? You get to read loads of books and talk about philosophy and poetry with educated people and have a lovely time. And yet, we never seem to find an example, I can't think of one, where an Athenian woman pretends to be foreign-born so she can have fun and go to parties. I'm slightly shamefaced to admit this, but long ago when I was doing my A-level ancient history, one of our ancient history teachers asked a roomful of girls, for such we were, whether we would rather be Athenian wives or hetairai, i.e. women with very much lower status, but who got to read books and go to drinking parties. And sorrowfully, all of us aged 17 were very much up for being hetairai rather than wives. I wonder if it looks like a desirable, relatively desirable lifestyle from here, but but it wasn't from there. What do you think? Well, I think it was much better to be a wife because one had the protection of the law, the protection of one's family. One came to a marriage with with a dowry, so the husband had to tread lightly or he would lose that dowry. When a wife became an old woman, she would have her children looking after her, especially her sons, a hetaira, had no protection. So they had to to really scrounge for a living. And I think this is why they are depicted as rapacious, choosing men, not for their talents, but really for what they could get out of them. But then if you look at it from the Hatira's point of view, the period in her life in which she can actually make some money and secure her future is very short. The Athenians and other Greeks loved very young women. And in Greece, one would be old by the age of 30, that one's teeth would be falling out. So she moves in with Pericles, and he loves her extraordinarily, we're told by Plutarch, who writes a biography of Pericles centuries later. Uh, he says he loves her uh, diaphorontos, I think, uh, to a differing degree, in a different way. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, people, people try to get to him through her. She's accused at one point of asabea, of impiety, the exact same thing of which Socrates is accused and convicted and, and made to commit suicide for, by the way. And, uh, and he turns up, this is so brilliant, he turns up and just cries really hard in court until they let her go. <laughs> there is a bust of Aspasia in the Vatican Museum. Well, actually, it's a herm, a head mounted on a pillar with her name underneath it. So, two questions to answer. One, is this what Aspasia would have really looked like? And two, what on earth is a woman of such scandalous reputation doing in the Vatican? I went to the British Museum to talk to Ian Jenkins, curator of Greek things there, and asked him to tell me more about Herms in general, and this one in particular. A Herm takes its name from Hermes, and um, the idea of a statue standing on the border between one space and another, or the threshold uh, outside of, of a doorway, as a guardian figure. But Aspasia occupies a squared-off bust uh, mounted on a tall stele, and her name is inscribed curiously at the bottom of this stele. It was found outside of Rome uh, near Civitavecchia in the 1770s in circumstances which um, suggest that the sculpture is original, ancient that is, and that the inscription goes with it. When I say it's ancient, it's not as ancient as Aspasia is, of course, it's Roman. To my eye, this is an invented portrait. This, to me, is a rather disappointing 
one-sided view of Aspasia because we hear that she impressed philosophers and that she was thoughtful and the, this is certainly a thoughtful image wouldn't you say um, down cast, sullen, really. down, sullen and sulky I would say and downward cast eyes and veiled head and um, she looks everything but a, a lively floozy as she comes across in literary accounts but this may be what was wanted for a library and, and, and perhaps she fitted in there. I have to say, though, that I don't think that this has any hope of ever being a portrait after an original of the 5th century because that hairstyle is a very familiar one to students of classical sculpture and it doesn't begin until the later 4th century and then into the 3rd century. We call it the melon style of hairdos. So what you're telling me is that on my quest to find what Aspasia might have really looked like, what I've come to is a statue that was made something like 700 years after she was alive Mm -hmm. and based on nothing at all, just invented. This is a stereotype of one aspect of her, made for probably for a Roman library. And uh, if we go downstairs, we can see the portrait of of Pericles, which is a portrait of the Roman period, but based on a 5th century BC original. But for all that, uh, still a stereotype. Brilliant, let's go downstairs. So you brought me to see this head of Pericles, which, like every other head of Pericles I've ever seen, has him sporting a helmet tilted right back on his head. Does every statue of Pericles look like that, or do we simply know their Pericleses when they look like that? Well, there must have been an original in bronze which portrayed him as strategos, as general. So he is the leader and and the commander-in-chief of the uh, Athenian military wing of of, of society. But he's also principal statesman so he's pushed the helmet back to reveal his face and his civic side do you think this gives us an idea maybe of what aspasia saw in him or is it as difficult to find pericles through this statue as it is to find aspasia through the statue with her name on? for a different reason i think it's difficult to find him i think it's difficult because he made it difficult i think plutarch writing around ad 100 captures him brilliantly when he says he was somebody who was totally in control of his emotions and of of his facial expressions and he never smiled when it wasn't necessary or expressed any thought and revealed any inner emotion to his fellow citizens because he wanted always to be the same and this sameness extended to the the walk he took to work each day and back he always went by the same route at the same time so that they knew where their prime minister equivalent was at any moment of the day and um, he never went to weddings we're told because it always ended in a drinking party and he only once went when a favorite niece was getting married uh, but left when the wine was brought in that gives us a, a big disparity then between the idea of his idealised lifestyle and the idea of Aspasia's because she's always at yes. drinking parties and yes. he leaves as soon as the booze has cracked yes. open. I suggested to Sarah Pomeroy that aside from the partying, Aspasia must have been at the smarter, more educated end of the spectrum. Or why would people have been so fascinated by her? Why would Pericles, who could presumably have had his pick of beautiful, educated foreign women, have been so devoted to her? Yes, I think she probably was very clever, and she could have been literate. We we actually do know a lot about her, and she's she's an unusual hetaira. Aspasia probably came from a, a respectable family, but since they had moved to Athens, they could never be citizens. The only way she could marry would be to marry another non-citizen. And probably the her family thought it was a better arrangement, certainly for them, to have a connection to Pericles, who was the leading politician in Athens. 
And so they probably used her, as men do, use women as a bridge between two important families. We have two really good kind of categories of source for Aspasia. The first is philosophical dialogues. We hear about her in Plato, we get her in uh, Xenophon a little. In Plato, she's referred to in his dialogue, the Menexenus, and Socrates is talking to Menexenus, and Socrates says, obviously, um, I'm good at talking because my rhetoric teacher is really great. She's taught everybody, including Pericles. And Menexenus says, who do you mean? Oh, duh, you clearly mean Aspasia. Now, the thing is that these are very ironic dialogues, so it's really hard trying to work out, is that a joke or is it serious? Is he, is he just referencing something that everyone goes, oh yes, obviously he means Aspasia? Or is the joke, oh, Aspasia's got too big for her boots because she's always telling people how to give proper speeches, so this is a joke? Or is the joke, behind every talented man, there's a more talented woman? I, we don't know, it's impossible to tell. Um, he goes on to say uh, that she's very good at composing funeral orations. <laughs> Now, the single thing for which Pericles is most famous probably now is giving the great funeral oration at the end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War. And uh, where he talks to the people who've survived the first year of the war about their many, you know, dead friends and family. And the, the implication certainly is that, that Aspasia wrote this speech. So the, the question that we should all be asking ourselves, at least a bit, I think, is, is Aspasia and Pericles an early model for Remington Steele? Um, LAUGHTER in which she does all the hard work and he takes all the credit. I don't know, but uh, I like the thought of it nonetheless. Um, what's really interesting about the funeral speech, uh, whichever one of them wrote it, is that at the very end, he talks about women. And uh, the greatest glory, he says, of a woman is to be not spoken of at all, neither in praise nor in blame. In other words, you know those women who are seen and not heard in Victorian times? They're a little bit too obvious. Um, <laughs> if you could dial that down another four. Um, <laughs> And not only be not seen, but not heard and not mentioned. That would be perfect. <laughs> the invisible woman. I think there is something glorious about the man who is married to, to all intents and purposes, the most talked about woman in the whole of classical Athens, saying definitely you shouldn't want to be talked about. If the greatest glory of an Athenian woman was to be unseen, unheard and never talked about, what were they doing? Ian Jenkins in the British Museum took me to look at the Parthenon frieze. This came from the Temple of Athene, a project which Pericles himself championed and which was constructed during Aspasia's lifetime. So we're in the room uh, that contains the Parthenon frieze, or at least the parts of it that the museum has, and these women look suspiciously like Aspasia could perhaps have been like this. Could they? Well, actually, the Parthenon pout is ubiquitous <laughs> um, and uh, it's rather sulky and it's lippy and it's not very cheerful. I think they're types, not individuals, right. and they represent the youth of Athens, whether they be male on horses or here a procession of girls fitted out in, in heavy drapery. And they're carrying jugs and bowls and they appear right at the head of the procession ahead of the chariots and the machismo world of horses and, and leather of, of the cavalcade and, and the chariot race. And they act as intermediaries between the gender of, of men and the assembly of gods. And such a person as Aspasia might have taken her place in this procession. She was uh, an outsider by virtue of her origins, but she was an outsider by virtue of not being married to Pericles, by not being a, a citizen's wife, and by virtue of being an outsider, she was able to indulge in much greater freedom than was afforded to the wives of citizens. The wives of citizens led a cloistered life, commanding the household, 
and um, the great task that women were, were thought to be respectably engaged in was that of Penelope, you remember? Weaving. Weaving. So do you think it's fair to say that we have a better idea of idealised women in the Athenian world than we do of real women? Well, we do, don't we? I mean, um, can we really believe that all that women did was spin and weave? I mean, it's a, it's a male view. Um, there are a few hetairai, um, a few sex workers who, who spin, and they get explained as, as being like the shady ladies of Amsterdam, you know, who sit in the windows crocheting. Uh, not that I've taken any deep interest in... I, in I wouldn't imagine. Activities. But that's what they do, and it's thought to be erotic to see, as it were, a, a non-respectable woman... Pretending to, be yes, pretending to be respectable. Exactly. They do it in the nude, which is a dead giveaway, don't you think? Well, it's but either that or they just haven't finished crocheting the garment yet. <laughs> it's worth bearing in mind that in the whole of Plato, in all his extant works, which is a lot, only two women ever speak. Number one is almost certainly a fictional woman, Diotima. The only other woman who talks in all of Plato is Aspasia. So that gives you an idea of how important she must be. There are two dialogues, at least, two philosophical dialogues, which bear her name, which are sadly lost, but they still exist when Cicero is around a few centuries later. So, you know, she was considered important, at least by other thinkers of the time. The other great source of material on Aspasia is comedians who can never, ever be trusted. Um, Now, it's tempting to say, and lots of scholars have, that comedians don't like Aspasia because they are horrible about her. I think that is a really difficult statement to back up. Comedians are often horrible about all kinds of people, and often they quite like them in real life. They just have a thing. You know, they, have, they know they can get lost with it, and they'll do it. They're not always good people. I mean, the best example of it that I can think of off the top of my head is Aristophanes parodies Socrates in the clouds. He makes him an absolute crackpot, a money-obsessed, venal crackpot. And yet they were friends. You know, they, they, they appeared together at the symposium. They're drinking buddies. So, you know, who knows? Did Aristophanes love him or hate him? Probably neither, but he found him funny and therefore he made jokes about him. And so I think that's sort of what you have to bear in mind when they're writing about Aspasia. Nonetheless, they are vile about her. Cratinus, uh, who is the first comic playwright, we have virtually nothing of him, but he invents political comedy, calls her, I think I'm right to say, a dog-eyed whore. <laughs> Which is not nice, I think we can all agree. So why does Sarah Pomeroy think Aspasia keeps turning up in the work of so many philosophers and comedians? I think that's a Mediterranean tradition to get at men through their women. And Aspasia was... Oh, not just the Mediterranean, surely. (laughs) ...public figure. So she may have been out in public because uh, she didn't need to be secluded the way a, a respectable wife needed to be. So when Plato and other writers depict her as talking to men at intellectual conversations. This is believable. (laughs) And do you think it's fair to describe her as the most celebrated woman of 5th century Athens? As the best known, yes, yes. And do you enjoy the irony that in that final bit of the funeral speech, Pericles says the great glory of a woman is to be least talked about while being shacked up with the most talked about woman, surely, in ancient Athens? Yes, well... Politicians often say one thing and do another, don't they? I hope she enjoyed it. <laughs> do you know, I just hope she heard it and I hope she was laughing. If people picked on Aspasia as a way of getting at her partner, Pericles, I'm wondering how her life might compare with those of modern politicians' spouses. So I spoke to Kate Haste, author and documentary maker. She co-wrote The Goldfish Bowl, a book about prime ministers' wives, with someone who knows it all from the inside, Cherie Booth. I asked Kate first which political spouses she'd concentrated on. 
It was sort of 50 years and about seven spouses, mostly women, one man, Dennis Thatcher, of course. The major change has been that the media is much more intrusive and much less sympathetic than it was. Mary Wilson had a lot of attention, but she was very loved. It came to Norma Major and she had a terribly bad time. And Sheree, of course, did have uh, an even worse time for all sorts of reasons. One of the things about Sheree which might have made people a bit more antagonistic was the fact that she was an educated woman. She's the first Prime Minister's wife, or indeed spouse, who had uh, been to university, had a degree. Is that true? Mm -hmm. And moreover, the first who had a career, a separate career. Not only that, she had also stood as a um, MP. So there was a fear, I think, that there there was an undue amount of influence behind the throne. In other words, the Lady Macbeth syndrome. Yes, and was there a sexual element to the, to the media treatment and indeed comedians' treatment of Cherie Blair, do you think? It seemed to me that things reached almost a fever pitch when she turned out to be pregnant. The very idea that she might be having sex with the Prime Minister was absolutely disgraceful. I don't know what people thought they were doing to get their other children, but they did seem shocked. I think it was more sexist, actually. I think they hadn't got an idea of what the role was that they thought the Prime Minister's wife should do, but on the whole they thought she should shut up. And is it also the case that because he was, you know, so renowned for being impossible to get anything on, Teflon Tony uh, being a nickname that didn't come out of nowhere, that if we could attack her, it was a really good way of attacking him? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Why do you think it is that wives are seen as this kind of extension of their husband's politics and power? It seems to me that the only reason to attack, for example, Tony Blair through his wife is because you want to attack Tony Blair. and you can't find a better way of doing it. Why is it that wives are seen, when it comes to statesmen, as being kind of like a limb or an appendage rather than a person? I think it's the unofficialness of it, actually, that is unnerving for people. I think that you know where you are with the Chancellor of the Exchequer and you know where you are with the Principal Private Secretary and the other people who are around. And you know where you are with the advisors and you've got a fairly good idea of what each of them are supposed to be doing. And you also know that each of them is pretty well bound to have some sort of influence over the Prime Minister. I think that with the wife, you don't. It's a sort of, it's a loose cannon. She is a loose cannon. And so it's not clear what the role is. So it's a sort of, it's a behind-the-scenes thing, which is can, I suppose, be a little bit disconcerting, and which can lead to a lot of comment and in order to try and contain it. You know, you talk about, you were saying that the, the, the butt of comedy... Uh, that's a way of trying to contain something which you don't really know what the measure of it is, but you fear that it might be something worse than it ought to be. In other words, she is an unelected person who has actually got influence over the Prime Minister. She clearly has views of her own. And then, on the whole, you might want to expect the worst because of this business of not having the role defined again. See, sometimes I think the the person who got the Prime Minister's wife role most accurately um, was... Dennis Thatcher is that terribly unfair he just he wasn't really ever seen or heard he sort of did his own thing nobody really gave him very much thought and when they did they sort of assumed he was in a club somewhere having a whiskey which I think was probably true I I sort of vaguely feel like he might be the most successful Prime Minister's wife of the last century men just don't get it like that they don't they don't get that kind of attack actually it's much more easy to accept for some reason it's about roles it's about how you how you 
what do you expect of people? And then when they come up and they're sort of completely different, then you sort of, people don't know how to deal with it, really. I mean, the best thing is probably, I mean, since Cherie, people have kept their heads down, basically. I mean, we didn't, and also I think that the press hasn't really been all that interested in um, in either Sarah Brown or, um, or Samantha Cameron. <laughs> I think people are interested in Samantha Cameron's frocks, right? I mean, that's people basically go, she's very pretty and thin and mm. she wears British designers and well done. And that's, that's literally everything I can tell you about her, which I now realise is everything I can tell you about Kate Middleton as well. <laughs> so perhaps this is now the sort of template of statesman's wife, whether elected or unelected, mm. is to wear nice frocks and not say anything. Well, I think people always, would have always preferred that, that they wore nice frocks and didn't say anything. Which is what Dennis Thatcher did so well. <laughs> Aristophanes in the Acarnians has a character suggests that the whole Peloponnesian War, the 30-year war which destroys Athens, the Peloponnesian War is begun um, by a sort of spate of reciprocal prostitute stealing from respective brothels. See, it's obviously a joke, right? You see, you see, it's funny. And so some Athenian men go to, I think, Simaeatha's brothel in Megara and they steal one of her girls. And then they come, there's these Megarian men come back and they steal a couple of Aspasia's girls. So he instantly paints Aspasia as a brothel keeper. I think it's probably a joke. That would be funny, I, I think, in the context. So, you know, he's got a whole audience of people. They have to know who she is, right? Or they're not going to laugh. You can't make a joke about somebody who's obscure. They won't laugh. So uh, he says, therefore, this character in the play, that the entire Peloponnesian War uh, was begun by these three Lycastrii. Now, this is a word of such staggering rudeness. <laughs> Um, that I can't tell you what it means without getting barred from Radio 4 for life. Um, that the only equivalent of it is a really long time ago when I was, I think at college, maybe at school, um, I was having to translate juvenile satire six, which is the one on women, which is filthy. And it's so rude that when you got to a certain bit, uh, you would get, even in your Latin, the big Latin dictionaries that I got to borrow when I was at college, um, when you looked up the word, it wouldn't give you the English, just the Greek. <laughs> Correspondingly, of course, when you looked it up in the giant Greek dictionary, it was so rude they would only give you the Latin. <laughs> so you're just sitting there going, just tell me where the masseur puts his hand. How bad can it be? <laughs> Come on! Um, so uh, following that theory, therefore, uh, let me share with you that Lycastria in Greek would be best translated into Latin uh, with the word phalatrix. Um, <laughs> so there you go uh, that's what uh, he has to say about her I think it's incredibly difficult trying to build a person out of their um, portrayal in comedy or indeed in sort of ironic comical uh, philosophical dialogues the best example I can think of for how this works is imagine if you lived in two and a half thousand years time and you're trying to work out as a scholar of contemporary brackets to us culture what Barbara Streisand was <laughs> And all her records have been destroyed. No cheering, thank you. She is an icon. Um, and therefore, the only piece of evidence you have is the episode of South Park <laughs> Mecca Streisand, where a giant robot Barbara Streisand threatens to destroy the town. That's what it's like trying to build Aspasia. <laughs> Out of Aristophanes. <laughs> um, that is all I have to say about Aspasia, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.
Natalie Haynes was standing up for the classics. The programme was produced in Bristol by Christine Hall.